We'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 9 if you want to turn there this morning. Uh, I want to thank our musicians and Justin, I mean Gabe too, but he was supposed to be here. But we had a bunch of turnover in the last couple of days, everyone kind of jumping in different ways to, to kind of help put the service together. And so thanks to Justin for Greg, we was supposed to run sound and he played the bass and we had to send Gabe Jacobs up to the Zachary group today to lead worship. And so it was just a whole bunch of turnover today. But thankful to them and their uh, willingness and awesomeness to like make it make it happen. Uh, all right, um, it's Mardi Gras weekend uh, right now, which you know already, which means that the season of Lent is just a few days away. And on your chair, when you came in, you had a little. There's a little guide here. We're going to get to that at the end, so you can just put that aside. But I want to make sure that everyone uh, has one. <coughs> Excuse me. You can tuck that away because we're going to uh, be in Second Samuel as we bring to a close our series um, that's paralleling the thirty days of prayer, which we only have one more day of, and we we time up the thirty days of prayer so that it ends right at the same time as the actual church birthday. And so last Sunday we had a church birthday party, and so uh, thanks to everyone who worked hard to make that happen, and it was a great, just a great time to be together and celebrate it. We didn't want to do it this weekend because we knew with Mardi Gras people were out of town and traveling and all that stuff. Uh, but Monday is our actual birthday, February the 24th. We'll be a whopping two years old, and uh, it's been an, an incredible two years. And so we basically start with a church birthday back up 30 days, and that way we're praying ourselves into a new year, uh, new church year together. Um, the 30 days has, has been covering the 23rd Psalm. If you've been tracking along, you might just be done with the 23rd Psalm for a while. You know, you might be just ready, just ready, ready for a break uh, from it. And um, the Sunday sermons have just basically been pulling themes out of, out of that journey from the last week. And so um, I want to look at a, a, a story that's kind of tucked away into the Old Testament that I think is, it reiterates some of the same themes that we saw in the, the end of the 23rd Psalm this week and as a way to just kind of pull our prayer journey together. Um, so we're in Second Samuel chapter 9. Let me give a little bit of background first so we can kind of um, all be on the same page. So the people of Israel, uh, prior to all this, they, they were demanding to have a king because they saw all the other nations had a king, and apparently to them that's what made you a legitimate nation if you had a king uh, on the throne. And God had been telling them, no, you're not like the other nations. You're not, those are the patterns of government in the world, but you're not like the other nations. Uh, you're, I'm going to be your king, and I'm going to guide you and lead you. I'm going to be... Uh, you're, you'll be my people, I'll be your God, and I'll be your king. And, and that was what he was trying to establish with them, but they were just so stubborn. And so they were just insistent on it. And so they decided to go out and find, they're just going to pick a king. And so they went and they found a guy named Saul, and they picked him literally because he was taller than everyone else. And so if you're not sure who to vote for for president, maybe there's a new metric you can use, I don't really know. But... Um, they voted for him because he was taller than everyone else, which was turned out to be a, a disaster. Not only is that a terrible way to pick a king, uh, that is a terrible way to go against your God. And so they picked Saul, made him king. He was, a night, he was just a train wreck. 
And so God said, okay, uh, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to pick a human king then. If you want a human king, I'm going to pick him. And because you guys are looking at the outward appearance, literally and, and figuratively, I'm, but I'm looking at the heart. I know the heart of the one that I want to be king. And he picked a young man named David, who was a shepherd. Um, he was a musician. He was um, part, of a, part of a family, uh, but he was the youngest in the family. So God picks David to be the king. And this, uh, of course, made Saul furious. Because the prophets were saying, Saul, you're not the king. David's the king. And he's like, no, I'm the one wearing the crown. I'm clearly the king. And so Saul decided that the best way to deal with this would be to, to have David killed. And so there became this, <clears throat> this uh, mission to kill David so that he would not be a threat to Saul's kingdom. Now, meanwhile, uh, like David, David and Saul's son, Jonathan, became best friends. And Jonathan knew, he knew that David was God's man, not his dad. And so he sided with David face to face in their, in their friendship, but he kind of had to play along a little bit in regard to dad because that's, that's kind of how it was working. And, um, and so when things got really heated and Saul was trying to kill David, Jonathan was giving David some inside information to help him escape and so there's this moment where uh, it's pretty much like this might be the last time they see each other. And so they're kind of saying their goodbyes because David is either going to, he's either going to escape and live forever and be okay, or he's going to be killed in the pursuit. And they have this, this conversation and uh, it's, this is in, you don't need to turn to it, but it's in first Samuel chapter 20, verse 15, Jonathan asked David this, he says, do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. In other words, uh, you're going to survive this because you're God's man. And when you survive, will, will you spare my household? Because what would typically happen is David would win. And then he would bring his army in and he would kill everyone, everyone related to Saul. They would all, they would all die. In other words, to eliminate the family line from the face of the earth. That's what would typically happen. So Jonathan says, when you win, will you covenant with me that you will not destroy my kids and my grandkids? Will you you not like destroy us in the face of the earth? And, and they, they covenanted together that that would be exactly what David would do when he survived. So, um, one thing leads to another, David escapes, he survives, leads to this whole, all this fighting back and forth. Ultimately, David wins. Saul dies in the battle. Jonathan dies in the battle. Uh, David is victorious. He brings the ark back into Jerusalem. He makes a covenant with God. He's celebrating uh, his victory. He's, uh, he is finally, God's man is on, on the throne of, of Israel, exactly how it should be. Um, and then that's when we pick up this story in 2 Samuel chapter 9. So that's a quick overview. I hope it made a little sense. Um, look at verse 1. David said, is there any, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a, there was a servant of the house of Saul. His name was Ziba and they called him to David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? He said, I'm your servant. The king said, is there, is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? 
Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Mashir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mashir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, that's right, Mephibosheth, practice that one. The son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell on his face, and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. He answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Mekah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. So this little story, not very long, not very intense. Um, but there are some there are some real similarities between David's treatment of Mephibosheth and God's treatment of us of us. And so and what I want to do is it's not a real typical sermon format for me, but I want to point out six similarities uh, that you and I have with Mephibosheth, and then one really big difference. All right. So if you're taking notes, there's seven points. Here's the first similarity we have to Mephibosheth is that we are benefactors of promises kept. We are benefactors of promises kept. So in verse one, David says, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show that him kindness for Jonathan's sake? That is referencing the covenant that they made together, that he would not cut off Jonathan's house from the face of the earth, that he would not destroy them all. Um, that was a promise that he made to Jonathan. And then, um, in a, in a different kind of way, he actually made that promise to Mephibosheth like a long time before that. And so he, uh, Mephibosheth is, is there just all of a sudden this guy comes up and like enters, enters in his life and says, Hey, I made your grandfather a promise and I'm about to keep it. And so he was a benefactor of, of someone keeping a promise that was made to them. And so you and I uh, are under like the same kind of like incredibly beautiful situation. And I hope that that, that is, is really the, the tone of this morning is just by way of reminder, the goodness of God and how it is expressed toward you and I. And if you are not a Christian, 
If you've never gotten to the point where you have looked at Jesus and you've said, you, you are my rescuer from this busted and broken world, and there's, there's nothing I can do to save myself, but you have come to save me. Um, today wouldn't be a reminder for you. Today would be a presentation to you of the goodness of the God that we worship and the God that has come to offer you the same things that he has offered to all of us uh, and that Jonathan off- that David offers to Mephibosheth. So we are the benefactors of someone who is, has kept and is keeping and will keep his promises. A few weeks ago, we looked at this verse in 2 Peter chapter 1. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. We are under promises. God promised that he would send a redeemer, and he kept that promise. That, re- that redeemer named Jesus has promised that he, uh, that he would go, and he's preparing a place for us, that he would come and come back to us that where he is, we may be also. He promised that he would send the spirit of God to dwell within us, to lead us to the truth, to speak the, the, the peace of God to us, to manifest the presence of God among us. Um, there are these great and precious promises, things that God has already fulfilled the things that he's fulfilling now and things that he will fulfill. And so when you, you see Mephibosheth, who is just going about his normal life, and suddenly word comes to him, hey, the king is here and he wants to see you. What would have gone through his mind is, oh, he's come to kill me. Because that's what the kings would do, is they would eliminate the family line from, from those that they had conquered. But instead of being killed, he comes in and he actually like says, I, here's this promise that I made to your grandfather, and begins to roll out all this beauty to him. And so like Mephibosheth, we are the benefactors of someone greater than ourselves, who is keeping promises that he has made to us. That's the first similarity. Second, second one is that we receive kindness for the sake of another. This is verse 7. David says to Mephibosheth, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I keep saying grandfather. I mean father. Saul, grandfather. Not good dude. Jonathan, great dude. Father. Got it. We receive kindness for the sake of another. So um, David has come to Mephibosheth not knowing Mephibosheth. But he knows, he knows his father. And for the sake of your father and the covenant that he is a part of with his father, he is going to show him kindness. Um, not necessarily for Mephibosheth's sake primarily, but for his dad. Now, this, this is a delicate one, and I'll circle back to it in a little bit. But the kindness of God is given to us for the sake of another. It's for the sake of Jesus, his son. 
It's not something that we could earn. It's not something that we could could fix ourselves. This this internal brokenness of ours is um, it's we what we brought to the table is just not enough. We couldn't restore our own souls. We had to have someone else do that. And so, for the sake of another, the kindness of God comes to us. So, what it says in Ephesians chapter two, thirteen and fourteen. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. See, in, in Christ we're brought near, not in our own efforts, not in our own keeping of the rules, not, not, not in anything that we could really contribute it's we're, we are in in Christ. There's a there's a line of thinking throughout uh, theology that that compares Jesus to uh, to the ark, like Noah's ark. That ark. That Noah and his family uh, got into the ark, and the waters rose and the waters went down, and they were safe because they were inside of the ark. They passed safely through the waters because of what because of what contained them and that jesus is the same thing we are in christ and when we're in christ we are able to pass through the waters that's why baptism is such a beautiful thing is that we are submerged and we rise again to walk with him because of who we are in not because of our own efforts and so the kindness that comes to us comes to us primarily because of who we are in it's his righteousness that covers us. And so the kindness of God comes to us for the sake of Jesus, just like the kindness of David comes to Mephibosheth for the sake of Jonathan. And again, there's more to that point I'll get to in a little bit. Third point. We are part of a massive restoration. We're part of a massive restoration. He tells him, we're again in verse 7. Do not fear, I'll show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. I'll restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Now Saul was the king of Israel. Do you think he had like an acre and a half on the, on the back corner of the... No, he, he had some land. He had some stuff. And so David comes to Mephibosheth, not to bring death, but to bring kindness and to restore to him all that, that, all that was a part of what his family owned at one point. He's, he's not, only, not only sparing him from something, he's showering him with all this extra. He's bringing to him what was his in the first place. He's bringing Mephibosheth back to the way it should have been. Before all the war and the fighting and the killing and the battle over the throne and all that kind of stuff, he's, he's, he's saying, no, let, let's go back to the way it was supposed to be. And we too are part of this massive restoration that is happening. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, After you've suffered a little while, 
Okay, meaning, meaning, uh, like the however many years we live this life on this earth. He calls it a little while, because in light of eternity, it is just a blip on the radar. Um, <clears throat> after you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's Peter looking forward. Here's, here's what it says in the book of Revelation. This, is, this describes the restoration that we are a part of. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God. He will be my son. We are part of a massive restoration. Mephibosheth receiving all the lands of Saul does not even remotely compare to what is ahead for us in Christ. That this earth will pass away and a new earth will take its place. And that description right there, that it essentially sounds like, like the Garden of Eden just with all of us giving, getting to live in it. Like he's restoring it to the way it was before Sin and death and our rebellion broke everything. And so we too have someone that has come to us who is a king who says, I have great news. Instead of bringing you death, I'm going to bring you kindness and I'm going to make all this the way it was supposed to be the whole time. Fourth similarity. We always have a seat at the king's table. We always have a seat at the king's table. So again, verse 7, he says, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And, so in other words, it just keeps getting better. And you shall always, you shall eat at my table, always. This week in 30 Days of Prayer, we read the end of Psalm 23. Verse 5 says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That this this journey through... Uh, down the path of righteousness in the first couple of verses of the psalm 
the journey through green pastures and quiet waters, the journey through the valley of the shadow of death and the worst things that life has to bring, that the shepherd is with him the whole time, leading him to a table, a table that has been prepared for him. And he is not a stranger in this table. This is a son that's made it home. This is a father preparing a table in the presence of of enemies, strategically leading him to this point. This is a father who keeps the cup full because he, he welcomes the son to his home, who is anointing him with oil because he's so glad that he is there with him. It's the son that has realized he's, there's never been a moment where the goodness and mercy of his father wasn't pursuing him and guiding him and shaping him and that this table will always be his table. It's not just any table. It's the king's table. It's the shepherd's table. But you know, David used to be a shepherd and now he's a king. Jesus is both all the time. The king is shepherding us along. And so like Mephibosheth, we will always have a seat at the table of the king. And there's nowhere else that you want to eat, you know. Like there's nowhere, there's no better place to be. And so our future and our hope is secure. And as he continues to lead us through the really great parts of life and the really difficult parts of life, to know that our future, our future is that kind of future. It makes a difference. It changes how we go through the valley and how we go through uh, the green pastures. And it changes how we walk the path of righteousness. It's not, uh, it's not something that, oh, that's what the super Christians do, right? That's what the really holy people do. It's like, no, that's what the sons and daughters of God do. And we're learning that together as we go. Here's, the, here's point number five. These last two are, 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 might hit home a little bit differently than the previous ones have. Point number five, uh, similarities to Mephibosheth, is we don't know what to do with grace. We don't know what to do with it. Here's what I mean. So verse seven, he's just said, I'm going to show you kindness. I'm going to give you all, I'm going to restore all the lands of Saul to you, and you will eat at my table forever. And this is what Mephibosheth says in response. Verse 8. He paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? We don't know what to do with grace, do we? Like, like let's be honest. We don't know what to do with it because it doesn't calculate. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't transfer in, like, in our lives. That, that here you are, not deserving anything, and someone's going to shower you with all this kindness and all this abundance and all this goodness and all this mercy and this kind of future. We don't know. It, it makes us uncomfortable, you know, because it, it doesn't seem fair. Like we we love we love the, like the idea of justice because it seems like it seems equal somehow. You know, you did this, so the punishment is this. We're like, okay, I, I can understand that. That's why, you know, like for so long, uh, people have used the like illustration of a courtroom to try to present the gospel of like, well, you were, 
you sinned against God, you deserve the death penalty. Jesus came in and paid the fi- the fine for you so you could leave, you know, like that kind of thing. Because we we like courtroom stuff. We like courtroom dramas. We understand, but it's because we understand it. We understand the the blind justice statue with the scales there and all that. Grace throws all that out the window. Grace does not make a sense in that in that world where we want it, we want to have checks and balances. We want the ledger to make sense. Because it makes no sense that God would come in and do this, just like it made no sense to Mephibosheth. And he's like, "What? why would you do this to a dead dog like me? That's his exact words. Even David says it in Psalm 22. Uh, he's talking about the goodness of God and all this stuff. And then in verse 6, he says, but I'm a worm and not a man. That's a, I mean, a terrible like insult to yourself, I guess. Maybe he was... I've been feeling very creative that day, but like, he's like, I'm a worm and not a man. I don't, what does that mean? I don't know, but he's not thinking very highly of himself because he doesn't really know what to do with <clears throat> who he thinks he is in light of who God is and the kindness that's coming his way. And so our tendency is to deflect and we find a reason to make ourselves an exception to it. It happens all the time. We find ourselves, we find a way to make ourselves pay for it somehow. Just like Mephibosheth is trying to do. He's basically saying, you really should kill me because that's how it works. I deserve death. And David, well, we'll get to David's response in a second, but it's such a common thing for us because the grace of God is not fair. It's not supposed to be fair because the grace of God is his love toward you and me. Grace is unearned. It is that compassion and that kindness and that goodness and that uh, unconditional loyalty that he has to you that is not based on your behavior, is not based on your past or your present or your future. It's based, it is based on something that is greater than what you bring to the table. And so we don't know what to do with it. Just like Mephibosheth. And so he tries to deflect and say that I'm a dead dog and all that. And what does the king do? <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 9. The king, uh, the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said, All that belong to Saul and to all his house are given to your mat. He just moves on. So the, the, this, is, this is the plot of those verses. I'm going to give you kindness, restore all the land, you'll eat at my table forever, but I'm a worthless dog. Uh, set it all into motion. He doesn't even like take time. Oh, come on, buddy. You're not, a, you're not a worthless dog. It's okay, man. He doesn't even like mess with that. He looks to the servants and like, this is what's happening. Get it together. Go farm the land. Make sure all of you have something to eat. But this guy, he's at my table. He's not even worried that the, gra- that the grace has to like make sense to him. He's like, it's, it's happening where that makes sense to you or not. Now, we will spend our whole lives wanting to understand the grace of, of God, and we should, and we should study it, and we should ask questions about it, and we should, we should read books about it from the right authors. We should listen to some podcasts, but not most of them. Um, but, like, like, this is something we, it's not that we should not try to understand it, but just know that it, it doesn't, it's not something that we see in our lives very often. And to prove it, just go do something gracious for someone and see what they say. They don't know how to handle it. 
Be gracious to your kids. They won't know what to do with it. But then it starts to become something where the more, the more we receive it, and the more we see it in motion, and the more, more people are gracious to us, and then we are gracious to them, it creates a culture of grace where instead of deflecting it like we see here, we learn to walk in this thing called humility. Where we are completely in touch with reality. When we're in touch with reality and the grace of God is coming our way, we understand I did not earn this. And it absolutely, it makes me humble in the sense that I, I makes me want to stand taller. That my heavenly father would look at me as his son and still take care of me. It tells us something about who God is and about who we are. And it makes us humble. Not self-deprecating. It makes us truly humble. We're able to, to receive what God has for us. And so, if you don't know what to do with grace, you're not alone. We're learning. But a part of what we want to create here is a church, is a like family culture that is incredibly gracious. God has been gracious with us that we will be gracious with each other. And the more we walk in it, we want our kids to grow up and for them to be more comfortable with it. We don't want our kids acting like Mephibosheth here. Not here, at least. There's a beautiful part of his story a couple of chapters later that you would want your kids to be like, but this, no, you want them to understand and just to receive it. To say, I didn't earn it, but I'm going to receive what you have for me because you are good. Here's the sixth point. We bring irrelevant brokenness to the table. We bring irrelevant brokenness to the table. Now, when I first wrote that down, I first put, we bring brokenness to the table. Which is true. So Mephibosheth, when he was young, uh, and this war was breaking out and stuff like that, he had a caregiver that, that scooped him up, and they were fleeing, and got tripped up and somehow he was dropped and his legs were broken or feet were broken or something like that and this was the ancient near east there wasn't a lot that they could do and so uh that's why it says that he was crippled in both both feet or both legs it happened when he was a baby and so it's how he lived most of his life and so um when when it comes to being seated at the king's table there's a brokenness that he is bringing. And part of it is that, but part of it is also the fact that he comes from a broken family line, which should have put him in, like he should have been put to death. Uh, there's just no, there's no reason why he should be seated at the king's table. He had all kinds of reasons why that should not have been his place. And so we too, seated at that table, the table prepared for us, in the presence of our enemies, that, that idea. We, we, we pull up to that table and we have our own forms of brokenness that we have brought. We have our physical brokenness. We have our emotional brokenness. We have our spiritual brokenness. There's so much about us that, that, it, that we should not deserve to sit there in that, in that sense. And the reason why I say that it's irrelevant is it's irrelevant brokenness is because it is irrelevant brokenness. Like that does not matter at the king's table. 
your emotional pain and wounds, your physical pain and wounds, your spiritual pain and wounds, just every, just holistically, whoever you are seated at that table, whatever's running through your list of why you shouldn't be there, it does not matter. It's irrelevant to him. It says in verse 13, Mephibosheth, uh, I knew I was going to mess up one of them. Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. It was irrelevant. David didn't hold it over his head. David did. David had no. There was just nothing about it that was important. Jesus says, Matthew eleven. Come to me, all who who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's another way of saying, come have a seat at my table. Don't hand me a list of reasons why you don't deserve to be there, because I'm just going to throw it away. It's your seat. It's always been your seat. Bring, bring all, like come as you are. Bring all your brokenness. The gospel of Jesus is never something where he says, you, you need to go take care of all your issues first, and then you, once you're good enough, you can come to me. There are world religions where that, that is the summary statement for them. You've got to do all this stuff in order to be good enough for God. And God's like, no, I want you to come to me just like you are. You will not stay like you are, but I'm, you're good, like you are enough just like you are. Come to my table. And there's a band called Leland that uh, wrote a song about this story. And, and I don't know, there's no, this is not in the scriptures, there's just kind of like bonus material. But um, a part of what they say in the song is like, I guess it dawned on them at some point. For Mephibosheth, when he's seated at the table, you know what you can't see? You can't see his feet. You, you can't see for him what was a part of the brokenness that he brought to the table. It's, it's, it's irrelevant. And for us, when we're seated at the table, when we, when we approach the communion table, what is seen is not our brokenness. The star of the communion table is the one who's serving it. Not our friends who will be serving here in a minute. Jesus offering you his body and his blood. That's, he's the star of it. And so we can, we can approach that with our brokenness in mind, or we can approach the table with the beauty of our Savior in mind. So our brokenness becomes irrelevant when we're at his table, communion table, banqueting table in heaven, however you want to think of it. Your brokenness is not the focal point. So those are six similarities. Here's, light, here's my closing point. Here's a big difference. Is that we are known. We are known by the king. See, David rolls in. He keeps this promise made to Jonathan, but he doesn't know Mephibosheth. He's keeping, it, he's keeping that promise because he made it to Jonathan. But for us, God is not only bringing us kindness for the sake of Christ but also for the sake of you because you are his son made in his image 
You are his daughter made in his image. He is connected to you. Now, Mephibosheth and David, they, they made a connection over the, from this point forward. But you and I, we start off with that connection. God's connection to you is like a parent to a child looking at those made in his image. And we have our issues and our rebellion and like our views of God need to, need to catch up a little bit. But the king has a connection to you and to me. This is Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The gospel, like the, the good news is, uh, it's one of those things where if it sounds too good to be true, then you're probably getting it right. Because it feels that way. You're like, There's no way this is real. But Jesus has made it real for us. And so we have the season of Lent ahead of us um, where, we're gonna, where you dig into a lot of these things. But I hope today has been a reminder for you of the goodness and the grace of God that has come to us. And if this is new information to you and you want to talk about it, please don't leave here without doing that. Plenty of us will stay here as long as you want to talk about these things and how we've come to know them and how you can as well. And so our response time will be what it normally is if you're regular here with us. Uh, We're going to sing. You'll see some people maybe coming and praying on the steps. Those You are welcome to come and do that. We'll have some folks on the front row that would pray with you and would love to pray with you about something specific. We also have two communion lines where you, you take the bread, you dip it in the juice, and you take, you take it. And they're going to say, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you. Over and over and over. If you want what Jesus has to offer you, you're welcome in our lines. Um, and so push all this together, mash all this together. And this Mephibosheth story is like a micro story of your story and my story. Which is this big story of, of God himself. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for uh, tucking this little story away in the Old Testament. And um, it's, a, it's a humbling one on so many levels. Um, I'm thankful that we can identify with, with Mephibosheth. Not only in our... Uh, and, and us not knowing what to do with grace or forgiveness or kindness, but in the fact that you have kept and are keeping and will keep promises to us. And so help us to digest these things. Help us to, um, to receive this with gladness and, and with gratitude. And God, as we sing and as we pray, as we receive communion, May we would just respond to the kindness that has come to us um, from, from beyond ourselves, recognizing that all we bring to the table is, is ourselves, and relationally that is enough. But we needed Jesus to come in and to take care um, of our redemption. 
And so we're just so thankful and pray these next few moments help us to respond in a way that expresses that gratitude and we get to do it together because it's not an individual thing as much as it is this this group of your children responding. We love you and we thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, our tables, communion tables are open. You can come whenever you're ready.